Hello, welcome to My Camino, the podcast. I'm Dan Mullins. Thanks for your enthusiasm in the wake of last week's podcast. I don't often call upon my listeners to lend a hand, but the response was brilliant. So I'll begin this week by saying thank you. Cancer either has or will touch all of us. So thank you from the bottom of my heart. This is a podcast about the Camino de Santiago, or the Way of St. James, a series of pilgrimages across Europe. Things are very slowly returning to normal, but it's going to be a long time before things get back to how they were pre-March 2020. We all couldn't possibly imagine how this year was to unfold. It's been an unprecedented journey for all of us. As one of my correspondents, my old friend Carl, said this week, we're all part of history now. So true, isn't it? When you think about what the future will make of 2020 and COVID-19, it will be a significant event in the timeline of life. That doesn't mean we have to sit back and wait for life to pass us by. As I said two weeks ago, life goes on. So make the most of it. One of the things I've loved most about the last six months is the presence of friends. It's made friendships closer, more precious, and more special. And I found myself reaching out to friends who need to talk. And I've been lucky enough to hear from friends who are thinking of others. I saw a great quote this week. A real friend is one who walks in when the rest of the world walks out. And the friends you meet on the Camino have a special resonance. They seem to shine brighter than most. It's because you've entrusted them with part of your journey. Your journey on the path that is the Camino and your journey on the path that is life. Keep the lines of communication open. Reach out to pilgrims you haven't heard from in a while. Tell them you're thinking of them. Ask them if they're okay. Bake them an imaginary cake and send them an imaginary hug. Provide your love for safekeeping. I guarantee you there's a pilgrim who will welcome your gesture with open arms and an open heart. Some pilgrims are lucky enough to have been able to make the journey back to the Camino. The rest of us can simply dream. Here in Australia, the government has banned international travel. We don't share borders, international borders, so it's anyone's guess when we'll be able to get back to the Northern Hemisphere. But I received an email from a pilgrim, Audrey Eager, this week. She said she'd just returned from the Camino Primitivo. She'd like to give us an update. Welcome, Audrey. Thank you. Great to be here. What you just said about, uh, you know, friends and meeting people and reaching out to pilgrims because, you know, it, it, I met a wonderful bunch of people and if I could sum up this Camino, it was about friendship. Oh, how lovely. That's fantastic. Was this your first pilgrimage, the Primitivo? My second. I did, by way of sort of an introduction last year, I just did that last stretch from Saria to Santiago on the French way. So this was definitely up in the stakes and, and you know, in increasing the distance I was going to walk and the hardness of the walk as well. So where did you start? I started in Oviedo on the 3rd of 4th of August. I flew in on the 3rd of August from London into Santander and got the bus across. So quarters wait on the 4th of August, I was packed up and ready to go. How lovely. And so how many days did it take you to walk from Oviedo? And did you walk all the way to Santiago? It took 14 days. Uh, all in all, um, and uh, I only had that sort of two-week gap 
to or two week time frame to actually get it done and that's why the primitive appeals because it's one Camino that you can get done almost in those two weeks and um, I arrived then on the 16th of August on a Sunday afternoon I would love to say the sun was splitting in the skies but the heavens were pouring down upon us oh. and it was a very wet <laughs> so you walked those 14 days as I understand it, the Primitivo is very beautiful, but it can be very challenging. I, I have to agree with you there. I Before I went out, I had sat down with guidebooks. I had, you know, read, been on the forums and tried to get some other people's experiences of what it was like. And um, and maybe it was only my, my own naivety as well that, you know, I just wanted... I live in a flat in central London and I can tell you that it takes 14 steps to get from the front door to the back wall of my flat and being in here for so many months by myself, you know, having one daily walk around central London when there was no hills to practice on. Um, maybe in my own naivety, I was thinking that it was very much like the flatness of the French way that I did last year. But then the Primitivo was definitely the first week in the beautiful mountains in the Asturias, but it was it was hot, which was a challenge. I could see exactly why it gets that name primitive, because you know it, it's harder and it's not quite as well serviced as the French way last year. Um, so yeah, it was definitely you know a, a step up on on what I was doing. But by God, some of that the the Asturias, the mountains in the Asturias was just to and you get up early in the morning and you're leaving between seven and half seven and the sun hasn't quite come up, come up yet. And you get a little bit of height and suddenly you're above the clouds and you feel like you are almost, you know, reaching up to heaven and then the sun comes up and burns the cloud away. And oh, it's just a, it's a beautiful feeling to wake up to every morning. How lovely, how lovely. You know, um, when you said it's not as well serviced, I mean... Are there, there wouldn't be as many albergues as on the French way, but how far do you have to walk each night before you can find a bed? This year, I think, is the exception. I'd say if you were walking, you would easily, you know, I would say the longest stretch I went was about seeing an albergue, probably somewhere between maybe 10 and 15 kilometres. Oh, okay. But this year being this year, the challenge was not necessarily where the, um, the, where the albergue was. It was actually it was the albergue open. And I spoke my, you know, when I was weighing up, will I or won't I do this Camino? One of the ways to reassure myself was that I actually had pre-booked everything before I went. So I knew right. where my, where I needed to be at the end of every day. Now, I, you know, the, 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 the real happiness for me doing this Camino was actually getting to meet um, other uh, peregrinos on the Camino. And they were doing it, um, you know, let's see where we're going and let's stop where we need to stop. Um, and if I want, want to stop a bit earlier today, I'll stop a bit earlier today. And then it just sort of the conversation I could hear around them was actually we need to make sure that the albergues are open, you know. So they did a, probably a little bit of pre-planning maybe the day before to look at where would they go the next day and where would they stay. So um, that that was definitely, I suppose, you know, a change in adapting to this new norm of walking the Camino and just be a little bit more aware of, you know, where was open, where was not open. So if you walk the Camino Francaise or the last 100 kilometres of the Francaise, 
before and then you would have walked at least some of the end of the France says this time around to walk into Santiago. Uh, How how did it compare in terms of numbers from last year to this year? On the French way, so we hit the French way. Franway, you know that route when you hit to Malala. And I have heard about this feeling, but I've never, I didn't experience it last year. But suddenly when you come off the quietness of another Camino and suddenly when they all start to converge all in one, there are people around you. And it is, you know, we um, had at this stage created our own little bubble and we're in our own little world. And then there's lots of other people around you suddenly. But comparing, like last year, I went at the same time in August and I, it was much quieter, I felt. Mm. Um, I can't, I don't know what the Primitivo was like. The, the, you know, one of the reasons why I also picked the Primitivo was it's a, it's the quietest one. So your chances of actually meeting people were slimmer. But, you know, even um, I I must have passed on that route. So I stayed in, say, after Malada, carried on to Buenta. And that route, Buenta, through to Via Arsua, up into El Pedruso, um, easily passed about three or four bars that were closed. Mm. Uh, and you comparing that to the Primitivo, and the Primitivo, you know, there were days when it was so hot and there was nowhere to refill your water, which actually I thought was maybe slightly on the dangerous side. Um, and you, you were taking, I was knowing this, in this particularly, it was taking, you know, uh, two litres in my rucksack have a, a can of Aquarius with me and then have another little, um, you know, beaker if I wanted, if I found somewhere where I could get some Acopotabla from, a, from a, a well somewhere. And then you just go in that heat, just absolutely just devour and drink up that water. And so the contrast then when you go from no water to suddenly, even though it's not as quiet, as busy, sorry, it's not as busy as previous years, but there's still places where you can go and sit out and relax and enjoy the walk, you know, and it's not quite so much pressurised. But numbers on the French way, definitely down on what I saw last year, mm. which was mm. sad in its own way, but it was also, there were still people, so there was still life. Yeah. You mentioned at the very top of the interview about friendship and and you've just mentioned then we created this little bubble. Did you go as a group or did you meet these friends on the Primitivo? Tell us the story about the friendship. This this was, for me, uh, the human side of wanting to do the Camino was sort of to begin with the escape from the flat and then an escape from the city and also in amongst all this pandemic and COVID and all of that you know we are all as individuals trying to do our best to you know to stop this from spreading and we've all made sacrifices and the conversation that you know I don't think has been spoken about enough during all of this is actually what has done this to our mental health and, you know, if you're working from home and you've lost that contact with your colleagues around you, you've lost your social life. Um, you know, people have left cities and gone back home to their families and worked from there. And yeah. one of the aspects that I found that came through is sense of loneliness. And to do the Camino was sort of, I need to get away and I just need to be out in the open. And I, I you know, if the, one of the things I really love about the Camino is that when you pass people by and you say, by Camino, 
it has a folks a sense of community and your it, it's respect and you're looking out for the people who you're passing by. And the Camino also offers you the chance where you can walk by yourself and for whatever reason that you want to walk by yourself, it's still a safe environment in amongst the pandemic. That's how I was looking at it. So even the morning I started in Oviedo, there were a group of three uh, young, uh, two lads and, and a girl. And again, if, you know, we all started off this morning. We, we don't know each other. We're walking at different paces, but we spent the day crisscrossing each other. Yeah. And got to say hello to them in the afternoon. And they were two 18-year-old lads from the Basque country, spoke fluent English, and uh, they were friends. And then you just spend every day sort of, you know, kept, I didn't see them, I think, for another two days. And then I'd met um, randomly, you know, one morning, uh, another Irish girl who was actually living in, in Valencia. And I didn't see her for another two days. And then sort of, you I was, you begin to recognize the faces. You could see people walking by themselves. And after about... I five days, I'd say six days or so, suddenly then I met the Irish girl again and she had met other people. And I obviously I saw the, the Basque boys, as I said to call them, and they came into I introduced them to this Irish girl and to the rest of the people who were meeting. And you know, we were all individuals pretty much pretty much who were there to do the Camino for their own particular reasons. And I think after a couple of days, you sort of, you know, do look at each other and go, well, you look healthy. You don't mm. look like you've got COVID. So actually talk to each other more. And what we, as we got to the end of the first week into the second week, you know, when you, when you do these routes and um, you realize that you are the, that group of people who are that doing that particular stretch of the Camino at that particular on that particular day and you're sharing that experience together and if you pass somebody that's suddenly looking very mm. tired and you stop and have a chat with them like, oh, come on yes you can do it you know we're nearly there um you know we've that that was that outreach and the support that we gave each other and in the evenings then we would come together and um have dinner um, and that was, that was a bit of a challenge because a lot of the restrictions along the camino was you know you know, we probably our most we were about thirteen people, and um, you know, trying to find a restaurant that might take a group of thirteen people was a bit on the harder side. And um, trying to play find places maybe that were outdoors. So you know, we were trying to be really respectful to all the local rules as well. But also, you know, as we got talking, I think one of the joys of the Camino was actually getting to hear and listen to people's life stories and. What's their motivation for doing the Camino in the middle of a pandemic? You know, there were two girls who flew in from Holland. There were two cousins from Venezuela who were living in Barcelona. There was an Italian guy living from in, in Barcelona. Um, there were a brother and sister and their friend also from the, the Basque country, uh, a guy from the Navarre, um, two friends who had flown in from Argentina, as it happened. So there were two French guys uh, along the route as well. So it, it really was that I saw that the, the best of what Camino is in bringing people together at this time in, in history, as you mentioned, we are now living in history. And for whatever reasons, and everybody's got their own reasons, you know, we would walk separately during the day because, 
as you say, the Camino is about you're, you're probably all bringing something to the Camino that you want to get sorted out in your head as much as it's for exercise or, you know, for seeing the beautiful countryside, for whatever the motivation is. Um, so we were very respectful to not encroach on each other's spaces as well. But then when we need to be social, you know, this was a Camino I described as done by WhatsApp. We had a WhatsApp group. So if what happened was myself included, if you forget, if you if you sort of ignore by accident one of the markers and you suddenly find yourself going down a different direction <laughs> that you shouldn't be going in, and you know the moderns of modern technology, go on the WhatsApp group and ask somebody, can you send me your live location so I can get myself back to where I need to be? Um, you know, and we've stayed in touch since we've come back. And you now we're back now, nearly coming up to a month. Some of the group went on to Fisteria. And, it, you know, um, it was great to see how the continuation of their journey as well. And we were almost with them as they carried on their Camino. And it, it was just that was such an up year where, you know, human contact has been very limited. And just to put it into perspective, even for myself, from mid-March up until the Camino, I had only come in contact with 10 people in the flesh since mid-March. Um, it's not a way to live. And so this Camino, very much on the human side of it, was uh, a wonderful, wonderful experience. So I actually see the best in people as we were walking along. What do you do in London? What's an Irish girl doing in London? <laughs> now, that's a long story. Um, uh, I describe my background as professionally because I came here for work uh, back in 2012. As you know, I have a I had a career and I have a passion. My career was in travel, so I've spent more than 12 years working overseas with a tour operator, actually specialising in the summer seasons and walking holidays, as it turned out. And uh, I was in Andorra for a couple of years, then I moved over to the French Alps, and then I moved to London to stay. And then I call my passion, actually, what I call my other career is my career in politics. So in 2016, I actually moved back into politics in London and was working on the Brexit referendum as it happened. So that was four years uh, up until this March and things quietened down. And well, the world seems to be picking up again at the moment. So, you know, very, very, that's a whole different kind of podcast. <laughs> yes, but it might very well be a different kind of podcast, but it's very important when we talk about you, Audrey Eager. Because I want to say, uh, this is very important, right? So, and I had a list of questions here. I didn't know that you were going to say Brexit. And I didn't know that you had po political uh, a passion, as you, as you put it. Because I, I have here, you know, you're Irish, you live in London. How did all that come, uh, come about? My next question is, Catholicism rings loud in the Irish psyche um, and has done for centuries and centuries, as you know. How do yeah. you how do you view Ireland from afar now? I'm very proud of Irish Ireland. I'm a very proud Irish woman. It's the one thing that everybody, you know, if you were to do you know this question when you go for a job interview and they say, you know, 
you know, what, how would your colleagues describe you? <laughs> and I, I could tell on a very personal level, my colleagues would say first, oh, she's Irish. You know, it's the, the accent has always given, um, I, I'm, 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 feel very privileged and lucky to be Irish. Um, now, the question of how I look in Ireland and if you're in the prism of Catholicism and the Catholic Church, yeah, um, you know, Ireland isn't a country that is ruled or dictated to by the Catholic Church as an institution anymore. But, you know, what we have is quite a spiritual people. Mm. People go to Mass anymore. If they go to Mass, it's probably because they choose to go to Mass. And they're two different things. But that I, last year when I did that, the, 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 the Camino, for me, that really was an exploration of that side of, you know, the, the spiritual side of the Camino. I really enjoyed going into churches and I went to the masses as much as possible. You know, I, I really would stop and, you know, smell the roses going into a church was to almost sit down and just pause and reflect on where I was at or how I was feeling, even if it was just how's that blister on my foot feeling, am I doing mm. okay? Yeah. Uh, this time around actually was a different Camino because it, it, it is the prim Primitivo, you know, there aren't many churches along that way. The culture around it was different in that you weren't, you know, it wasn't the Camino where last year where you would go and you'd go to the Camino Mass and get your uh, say, oh, you know, you know, it wasn't, that wasn't part of the experience. Um, I remember when I got into Santiago and uh, tired and hungry and, 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 and emotional and, you know, and some people were like, oh, I just need to go and get food or I just need to get a shower. I was like, no, I'm, I really want to get into the, the pilgrim's office. I want my Compostela because um, I made a mistake last year. I went for my Compostela the day after I arrived and I missed at the pilgrim's mass hearing Ireland being called out on the list of countries where the peregrinos had come from. And so I really wanted to have that experience this time. Um, so, and I know that was just a very personal thing for me that, uh, you know, a lot of this, the group I had come to know weren't quite on uh, at that, you know, uh, weren't having that same similar experience, but that was just something that I wanted to hear for myself in, in a church. Um, and, you know, it, it is the, the, when I would say to friends in living in London, you know, oh, I'm going to do the Camino, and they'd go, oh, I've never heard of the Camino. And I'm like, well, in Ireland, it's actually really popular because it is not just about the Catholicism, it is about the headspace mm. and, you know, the therapy that also goes behind taking some time out for yourself, taking your, you know, taking your time out away from this modern busy, busy life where you're not on your phone all the time and not on your computer and not on your emails and all of that you know, it almost sounds cliche now but you know Ireland is very respectful I found of oh you're doing the Camino, brilliant, well done, go for it you know yeah. um, but I'm, I'm also not fire too much into the reasons as to why you're doing it as well you know because it's a very private thing too um, but and I, I, when I look at Ireland and I compare it to here and to the reception that Camino gets, um, it is it's two very different things. And I find you know one of the things again I said I was just very proud Irish woman. Um, it, it is a very open 
country. Um, and if you go back to Brexit and you just see actually over the 100 years that Ireland has been independent, uh, you just see the progress of how far it has come, you know, from being quite, you know, a conservative Catholic country into now being a modern, liberal, progressive, outwardly looking country. And, and for the size of it, you know, in a small island in the North Atlantic, it's, it, it's, it really does punch a lot, you know, higher than probably it should, which makes me, you know, I could talk about being a proud Irish woman for hours. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, one of the things that my next question is actually, how do you think Ireland's relationship with the UK will change when Brexit comes full swing? But it's interesting because when you just said then, um, Ireland punching well above its weight. I was in Ireland uh, in ni- in the early 1990s, and in those days, it had it was starting to develop this uh, uh, this identity as a tech, um, a, a, a kind of like an IT um, mm, hot yes. hotbed, and and yeah. the, and I remember arriving there from Australia, going, "Wow, this this is a country like this is this country is going crazy." It was you. You the the sense in the in the environment was in 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 the political environment, the entertainment and cultural environment, spiritual environment. Every aspect was just that this is a country on the move. And and now I've not been back for for many years, but I still have family in Tipperary. I, I have a, my family that goes back not very far, actually. But I wondered. I, Having seen it for myself in the 1990s and and having seen it in full swing when it's like going gangbusters, how do you think Ireland's relationship with the UK will change when Brexit comes into full swing? I don't think it will change. And I don't think it will change because it already has changed. Yeah, And it has changed over the last 100 years. And, Mm. you know... This is something that British commentators don't really seem to grasp. They still visualise that Ireland is maybe still in the 1950s. And it does it hasn't got that sense of how far since the 1990s, mm. through the Celtic Tiger years, um, how developed it is. You know, there used to be a joke in Ireland that when you used to cross the border in Northern Ireland, you know, they had the better roads. But because of, you know, our our positive membership with the European Union and, you know, good strategic use of European funds, for example, when you cross the border now from Northern Ireland and you head down south, you, you you just literally start driving through modern, open European motorways. And you have this, you know, sense of, you know, this, this is this is the 21st century. Yeah. And it's, you know, not, it, that, it's completely reversed already. Um, and, you know, these British commentators over here still, you know, would... I, I often think, if, we, if I touch on the the political aspect of it, you know, I'm I'm an Irish I'm an Irish person, and I get to vote in general elections, where other people don't from around the Commonwealth, for example, and that's because 
They enacted uh, a bill in 1949 when Ireland became a republic. And the essence behind it is, is that they still considered us to be them or to be part of them when actually Ireland went off as an independent nation and created its own economic policy and moved away from being wholly based on agriculture and, you know, exportage market. And it developed, you know, one of the positive legacies from the Catholic Church is, is the, the education system. Sure, yeah, um, yeah. And it's not a system. So we've been able to, you know, regurgitate out highly qualified young graduates to service uh, many different sectors. And um, it, it comes from a place of, you know, I, I was actually just reading up on this the other day from, you know, this was a policy introduced in 1958, actually, that, you know, but it took a long time for it actually to really, you know, come about. And um, so we are probably very confident in ourselves. And when we look across the Irish Sea to see what's happening with Brexit and during over the last couple of years, when I would say to um, you know, friends or family or the taxi driver going to the airport and they ask you, what do you work on? And I would say, well, I work in politics and I'm working in the campaign to stop Brexit. And they'd go turn around to me and say, like, what are they doing over there? Are they mad? Do they not know? Do they not see what they're doing is absolute craziness? And there was a lot of scratching off the heads going, you know, how, how did it get this far? Mm. And it's not that far because... The education system in the UK doesn't incorporate in really teaching the positives of being in European membership. You know, it, it hasn't even had a conversation with this itself about the impacts the, the British Empire had around the world, you know. So in the absence of there being a vacuum of the right information, it's allowed other people come in and come up with this narrative and it's been wrong. And on top of that, then you have a society that has felt very left behind and you touch on the anger and the anger wants to point a finger at something and it became the European Union. And, you know, the, you know, the very basic psychology is, is that people are looking for somebody to blame and the European Union uh, was that something to blame. Um, but it, it is, um, I think now if you talk to Irish people living in Ireland now and other people living in Ireland and they would look at the UK and what's happening and they go, God, it is very sad. But you know what? Leave them to it because it's it's not our problem. Our problem now is to make the most of this situation. Yeah. Um, and to come through it. And we're a country and a people of surviving. We're survivors. We've, within our DNA, we know what our history is. We know the battles and the fights we've had. And we know tough times and we know good times. And we just get our head down and get on with it. Now, and that's something that I see in Britain. In, and I, I and I'm, you know, I, I worry about, you know, the social cohesiveness of the country and about whether they can actually have the capability to you know, come true what's going to be, you know, on top of the pandemic, a very hard recession. Um, and people are losing their jobs everywhere at the moment. And it's very sad to see. And, but you know, within themselves, are they a nation that will just crumble under the weight of it? Or like the Irish, will get their heads down and get on with it. Yeah. Um, it's, 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 uh, but definitely from an Irish perspective, it is sort of now at this point, it's, you know, we just crack on with whatever we were cracking on beforehand. <laughs> 
it was funny, you know, you just said something in there, Audrey. Um, you said um, the, the Irish have been through tough times and good times. Um, it's interesting because if I think about Irish people, and I've known many and love many, um, they are tough and they love a good time. And, and I think that their culture uh, and the spirituality of the culture uh, enables them to see the good in the bad and the bad in the good. And I wonder what somebody who wor- works in tourism and, and really uh, sells culture, that's part of what you do, you're encouraging people to go off and see other parts of the world and experience culture and the spirit of other people's lives and their ingenuity and their culture. What did you make of the slow tourism of pilgrimage, the, the w- walking to the beat of your heart, um, traveling really at a very, very slow pace through another culture and observing it as a visitor? That's the part I enjoy the most. Um, I mean, particularly on the Camino, you're only going at four kilometers an hour walking um, on a good day because I find there could be a lot of distractions. And when, you know, uh, I love the Camino for really getting to, to know the people, but, you know, to sit there and even enjoy the local food. As somebody who's worked previously in tourism, you know, people need different things from a holiday. And sometimes that just means you're working flat out for 11 months of the year and, you know, you want some time just to sit by the pool and read a very easy book. And there's sometimes where you actually want to read, a, you know, a good, solid, heavy-going book as well. You know, you need to be intellectually... Um, uh, you know, fulfilled and satisfied as well if, when you're on holiday. So that's what I find about the Camino because it is slowly moving and you can slowly get a feel for the place. And, uh, you know, people have asked me where, you know, would I not move back to Ireland or would I not move back to France or different places where I've lived in the past? On a very gut and instinctive level, I've got to get a sense of the people and the, the soul of the place and, if it appeals to me, I'm very interested and I go back to the place again as a traveller. You know, um, some people, for example, will like to go on city breaks and they'll just do a weekend in some in, in, in a European city, or for example. And the pro- I, I, I tend to stay away from that because what will happen is that I will get a feel for a place, I'll start researching it, and suddenly I get this idea in my head going, what would that be like to live there? Yeah. <laughs> so take it to the next level. So sometimes it's best to stay away from those city breaks <laughs> <laughs> in order to be able to manage, you know, exactly where you're living in the here and now and the present. <laughs> That's such a great answer. I, I, I love that because, you know, every time I go to London, I think, uh I just come, I'll just come back and live for a year, just a year. And then every time I'm in Paris, I think I'll go and live for a year. Even Madrid, I think oh, I'll just go and live for a year. It'd be fantastic, wouldn't it? Just be fantastic. But living in Sydney is a pretty good place to live. So I really should just count my blessings, I think. Hey, uh, tell yeah, me. Australia's not somewhere I've ever been to. So, you know, if I ever do, will I come back? <laughs> <laughs> 
Honestly, you know what, Audrey Eager, you may very well end up here for good because there's lots of beautiful Irish people here who love it. They absolutely love it because there's a lot of Irish culture here. There's a lot of Irish sensibility in all of us. I'm Irish, Irish stock from centuries. Uh, But the one thing you have to do when you come down here is bring a hat. Oh, absolutely. I am an Irish fair skins uh, lady and, yeah. you know, I get lobsterized very easily. Oh, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and you talk about Irish people away, but do you know what one of the re- one of the things I really enjoy about the Camino is you don't find an Irish pub along the Camino, which as an Irish person makes a lovely change. <laughs> do you know there is one? There is where <laughs> in, there is one in Sahun Sahun S A H A G U N Sahun. It's uh, it's yeah, it's it's it like it's a classic Irish pub. Yeah, yeah. So uh, maybe one day sells, I'll stick my head in the door. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sells Guinness and uh, the whole bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's um, it's just a uh, just like a block from the municipal albergue. It's, it's called something like Molly Malone's or something like that. Uh. Of course I would be. <laughs> <laughs> I actually played, I sang in there. I took my guitar and sat up in the corner and played all night, sang all night in there. Um, it was great fun. Tell us about arriving in Santiago, the Obradoiro Square in front of that majestic cathedral. You were only there a couple of weeks ago. Tell us all about it. It was a Sunday afternoon and we had sort of leisurely taken under 20 kilometres um, from Opedruso. And at this stage, there were one or two of us that were carrying uh, some niggles and a few, there was a few, I can't lie, there were a few sore, sore muscles. So we weren't really, this was the last day and it was slightly tinged with a little bit of sadness because it was also coming to an end. It did a compare and contrast to last year. Last year, I was by myself when I arrived in, but you know, that's the way I wanted it because last year I was like a sponge. I just wanted to take in as much as I possibly could, where this year it was a, a different Camino. This was almost the point that I remembered so well from last year. And um, the journey, the walk-in felt from Monte to Gozo, was, you know, felt a lot shorter. And you sort of, when you cross the road and suddenly you come into the old, the old city, and it's a Sunday afternoon and, you know, I didn't know really what to expect by way of how busy would it be. I really had no expectation of, of how many people would I expect to see in Santiago. And for sure, it was quieter than last year. Maybe the weather was keeping people away. And no sooner had we began to arrive uh, into the old town, but it was slightly been showery on and off for most of the day. But at this point, as the the, the weather apps had said, um, the heavens opened up and it properly rained down on us. And you know, I as an Irish person, we describe rain in different ways because we are so used to rain. And there's wet rain and there's dry rain and there's soft rain and all those different labels we put to it. But this, this was proper wet rain. You know, the other Irish girl that was in the group, her Spanish was a lot better than my Spanish would be. And she's explaining to the others exactly what I mean by dry rain and wet rain, because all they saw was rain. <laughs> <laughs> so translated. Um, and then we, when we came down the steps... 
and into the square. You know, the square was in front of the cathedral. It was really quite empty. Now that could have been that there was it was raining and there were people underneath the arches at the back. And we um, we had given ourselves a bit of a we had a, a a running joke throughout the whole thing, which was tortilla. For some reason, everywhere we went, there was tortilla. Whether it was free tapas or what was on the menu, or you know, there was tortilla, and we were like trying to have a day where there was no tortilla. But the tortilla would just appear. So that was our running joke. So when we sort of, we were toasting or cheering ourselves, you know, the word tortilla was, was uh, shouted out, which is very hard to explain to other people unless you were there. And when we did arrive into the square, and of course we were, you know, doing the usual whoop whoops and, you know, uh, hollering around. And I think what struck me really was that because we were the only people actually in the centre of the square at that time, the people who were taking sheltering from the rain under the arches, there was like this spontaneous clap oh. across from the arches. And it's like, there's our welcoming party. And, you know, that's, that's not normal, I felt. You know, that's something that's unique for us, which I found quite moving, you know. And, um, you know, it was... Last year when I arrived in the square, I remember I just sat on the ground and, you know, took a video of myself and messaged a few people and said, hey, I've done it, you know, and this time around, I felt like there was more adrenaline inside me. And I was like, well, we've done it, you know, and I was curious to see the reaction of the rest of the group. Would other people be emotional? Would they just be tired, grateful? You know, I was very interested in seeing how the rest of the group would react I'd say there were three, three or four people who had done the Camino before, so they knew what to expect. But for you know, for the first timers, you know, there was there is probably more of a sense of relief. Like, can we get out of the rain now? Type of a feeling <laughs> uh, on that arrival, and then we again we hid under the arches to get out of the rain. You know, took a few photographs, um, and we did two group photographs uh, together. We were still very much contained in our own space as well. The big thing was obviously everywhere you go, you must wear the mask. Right, yeah. So all the photographs were all got the masks on and it's, no matter where you go, in the Asturias and Galicia, Galicia even more stricter than the Asturias is, but when it's a public space, you must wear your mask, you will get fined, and it's not worth risking the fine. And you'll get used to it, and it doesn't become a thing after a while. You know, just if you if you want to experience the Camino in, in this current environment, wear your mask. So um, it, 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 it's... I went down to the uh, the pair of pilgrims office after that, and that was actually busier than I was expected uh, expecting. And I'm presuming that was probably due to the time of the day. You know, after about you know two o'clock, a lot of people will arrive in. Um, so I did have to wait around, and the that was extremely well uh, organised. And it took about an hour to get it, okay. which was. Um, a lot shorter than last year. Last year took seven hours. So, um, you know, it's, uh, and then, you know, you just walking around the streets. It, did, it unfortunately kept raining for the rest of the day. And um, so the streets were quieter. And uh, But it was, 
I, I can't lie. I was happy to arrive in Santiago. I think after doing 320 kilometers, I was glad to see it. Hey, can I just ask a really silly question? If, you, if you're required to ask a ma- uh, wear a mask everywhere you go, what happens when your group then gets your certificate and meets for lunch? Are you all sitting around the table with a mask on and pulling the mask down to, to take food into your mouth and then putting the mask back on? Or ha- what happens when you sit down to eat? This this was the this was the part that when we were actually walking during the day um, as a group we you know I probably think we came together once at lunch um, and uh, yeah the mask you know we like for me and my backpack on the little side pocket I had my mask in there and it was ready to come out within seconds. And when you're sitting down and, you know, the rule it's even in Galicia had changed by the time we got there that they only, you were expected to wear your mask up until the point where your food or drink was put in front of you. Okay, right. So sitting around a table, you were still expected to have your mask on if you were having a conversation. Yeah, right. Okay, right. Okay, that makes sense. Oh, look, I just talking to you just makes me want to go back tomorrow but as I said, at the... I want to go back tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> so that was my next question. What's in the future, Audrey? What would you like to do next? You've done a little bit of the Francis, or enough of the Francis, perhaps, or and now the Primitivo. What's next? What would you like to do? The it's fifty-fifty in between the Portuguese one or the Camino del the Norte one. Oh yeah. Um, but I need to do sort of a bit more research on it. And I think, you know, uh, I think, you know, the practicalities of real life come into here now is how much time would I have to dedicate to it? So I, you know, want to make the most of my time they're doing it. So whichever Camino would fit in with that. And, but yeah, they're the two. I would love to do the full French way, but in its entirety, but, I might have to do that, you know, when I've got more time. And, I, you know, I, I know some people break it up over several years. And um, when I'm doing something, I like to do it. I like to do it all in one go. I like the, I like the feeling of here I am on day one at the starting point and I've done the physical challenge and the mental challenge of actually getting me to the end. Um, I like that journey. So I think the Portuguese or the Camino del Norte could be possibly the two for the future. Well, look, I thoroughly enjoyed talking with you, Audrey. Thank you so much for reaching out and getting in touch and for bringing us up to date on on what's happening right now. Um, I think you said that you arrived on the 16th of August, Sunday afternoon. That's only really three weeks ago. So I really appreciate it. And I really appreciate you taking uh, some time out early on a Friday morning. The time difference between Sydney and London is pretty awful, really, when you're trying to speak to somebody on a podcast. So I really appreciate it. It's been a great pleasure talking to you. And I hope that you have many, many Caminos in future. And and I hope that, well, one day life gets back to normal for all of us. In the meantime, Buen Camino. Buen Camino. My guest this week, the Irish pilgrim who lives in London, Audrey Eager. Reach out to a friend. 
Tell them that you love them, that you miss them, that you care about them, but most importantly, that you're thinking of them. I love my quote from this week. A real friend is one who walks in when the rest of the world walks out. Until next week, I'm Dan Mullins. Buen Camino. Somewhere along the way Somewhere along the way